right, we will continue our study. There are lots of things happening in in the world as we, you know, it just seems not to end. Now, now there is also unrest in Syria. <clears throat> the president of Syria, as many of you know, is a is a physician. He's a he's an ophthalmologist. He's trained in England. His uh, his uh, wife is an is I think Middle Eastern, but she's English born, and. Uh, and it certainly does not look good when a physician orders orders his uh, his army to or his police forces to to shoot on demonstrators like they have been doing in Syria. It is it uh, it doesn't look good even if you are not a physician when you order that. But it 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 looks uh, not very. <coughs> it looks even even less less appealing. So. There is a lot, of, a lot of things to to wonder about and pray about, and about things that are happening in the world. The way it has been been uh, portrayed in the news is that uh, is that there has been some some contagion from what has happened in other countries, and then some students, some young people, made some graffiti on the walls in one of the cities in, in southern Syria and Dara. And then, and the, then they were arrested. These students, fifteen students, who were arrested for putting, you know, anti-government graffiti on the on the houses. And then, and then, some parents, of course, got quite upset about that. So they, there was a demonstration, and then, I think, four people were killed the first time around, and then twenty thousand eventually came out for a, for one of the funerals, and more people have been killed. And it has spread to to a few other places, you know. So, so what what's behind it? You know, that's uh, my my take on it is that that uh, at least one thing that would be legitimate to be behind it is that you don't like to re- live under emergency rule for sixty years, which they have. They have had emergency rule for since nineteen sixty three. You know, nobody likes that. No, that's why it's not a bad idea to study the book of Revelation because Revelation is a political book. It has a it has a political ideology. It seems to like freedom, and and that is kind of what many human authorities have not have not liked or have not been willing to subject themselves to the logic of freedom. So. Well, if you want an expert opinion about what is happening in the Middle East, you should ask uh, Nabil Rasuk, who was praying this morning. Uh, we also have a person in the audience, Ernesto, who has just come from Egypt. He has been in Egypt and, and, uh, and was there witnessing firsthand some of the, the unrest there. So we could spend the hour on those things, uh, uh, of course, and it would it would not be a waste of time so but we'll we'll do revelation and then hopefully there could be a, a time to get together and discuss some of the specifics and <coughs> out there these countries are not all alike they're all all very different each each country has an individuality it's not just a, libya is not just a north a, north african country it is libya and egypt is another country it's not just North African country, it's Egypt. They are quite different. Syria, also very different. So, so we, you know, if we want to do our homework, we'll have to do quite a lot of work <coughs> to, to understand the, 
the identity and history of each of these countries. This, these are the three uh, headlines for the last two chapters in Revelation. I just want to repeat them. The first one is more than paradise regained. Paradise regained plus something more than that. And then paradise regained. I think chap- uh, the chapter 21 is mostly in the, in the mode of more than paradise regained and chapter 22 is in some ways paradise regained. And then I want to do at least one session on, on the ending and the endings of Revelation. I'm going to give you a, some homework when we get to that point. I'm going to give you a piece of paper to, uh, to commit yourself uh, on a certain question I'd like to see, just to, to sort of get an op- opinion about, about the subject that has intrigued me. And, and may, we, maybe we'd, we, you would find that meaningful, I hope so. Let's uh, review, uh, pick up the text in uh, chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Uh, that we ended with those verses, but we want to do something more on the uh, the way the city is is described in the in the book of Revelation. So let's do do the, if I could ask one of you to read Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, "Come." I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Yeah, you might, any any wishes here to to discuss the city as a bride? Uh, That's uh, imagery we had also in Revelation 19 that uh, there is a a wedding in the works. So here, here there is a uh, the city is represented as a bride, and there, yes, a question of the angels, because you are noticing that this is one of the seven bowl angels, and uh, and that's our tour guide. You know, their tour guide for the fall of Babylon is one of the seven bowl angels. The tour guide for for the New Jerusalem is one of the seven bowl angels. So at least the anatomy, there is some sort of continuity going then all the way from chapter 15, where is, that's where the bowl, seven last plagues, you know, begins. So all the way from chapter 15 to uh, through the rest of the book, you have these, you know, one of these characters, one of the bowl angels. Uh, so so there is at least some sort of narratival con- continuity there, same same types of characters. Uh, now, is that is there a problem there? I mean, I, could you help me see what the, what's the because the, the, that should not be the case that an angel that has sort of been involved in the destructive scenes is now involved in the constructive scenes, or is that? Well, they don't seem to be the agents executing that. Certainly, in this, uh, the the clearest picture of that is in the sixth bowl. But but we have we have had to to sort of re re catch our bearings many times here because there is an angel in chapter twenty coming down with a chain from have a chain and a lock and he grabs you know the dragon, and we we completely deconstructed it and finally Satan was bound by circumstances. You know, so so the 
the notion of agency here is much more complicated than just to say, well, here is this angel and this is, you know, he finished doing that. He finished doing that, the dirty work of pouring out these bowls, and now he's taking you on a guided tour of the New Jerusalem, you know. So <laughs> you have to see, I think we, ha- we, we just have to, to see that these are, these are uh, symbolic structures. Anyway, uh, we're not going to do a whole take on the bowls again, so we're going to move on here. But your observation is, is to, to connect it to that is certainly there. It's certainly, certainly legitimate. The background text or background texts for this notion of the city, much of it is taken from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the last chapters of Ezekiel, from chapter 40 onwards, actually Ezekiel is an, is an under, undervalued contributor to book of Revelation because the, the, the battle of Armageddon, the Gog and Magog issues, are also very much drawn on Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 30, chapters 38 and 39. Uh, you have in chapter 20 of Revelation. And then in the last two chapters of Revelation, Ezekiel comes back and feeds into it. And one of the most beautiful, beautiful passages in Revelation is actually taken from Ezekiel 47, as we will see next time when we continue into chapter 22. Uh, so Ezekiel is not a bad place to to go to, to as a background text for the ending of Revelation. <clears throat> we're, we're just going to, to do a little bit of cherry picking there because we cannot read the whole thing. And it is extremely detailed. It, it's almost a little tedious, the la, those uh, six, seven chapters in Ezekiel, until you get to chapter 47. Then it just becomes extremely beautiful. And, and I would encourage you, if you want to read ahead, then read uh, Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. Just amazing, amazing text. You will, you will be, uh, be primed for action next time if you have read, read that, uh, that uh, passage. So just to get us uh, into it, let's read Ezekiel 41 to 3. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. He brought me in visions of God to the land of Israel, and set me down upon a very high mountain, which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, a man was there whose appearance shone like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. You know, much of this will reappear in Revelation shortly. But, you know, this city, the eschatological city. And there is a sense of, there is an eschatological sense in Ezekiel in the last chapters. It is, it is history in a sense. But it is not history immediate to the writer. It is in some way supra-history or history deferred. History with an eschatological texture to it. End time history, as it were. The battles of Gog and Magog. Those are not battles contemporary to Ezekiel. They are battles uh, with an uh, an eschatological uh, 
perspective, and, and Revelation picks up on that. You can so the, the oddness of it is just just there in your face. Uh, so one can see that in some ways these are these are symbolic symbolic representations. <coughs> Reading on in Revelation, then I. I'm not going to explain, say much more than that about Ezekiel, because you have to do some of that footwork. We can't do it all here and read, read it in every detail here. So let's uh, look at the t- uh, more than now, the rest of the chapter, much of it now in Revelation 21, is a description of the city. So if I could ask somebody else to, to uh, do uh, 21.11. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Any comment? Sort of, uh, just uh, your your uh, uh, immediate impression. Does it look uh, nice? You like it? You know stuff like that. <laughs> How do you feel? <laughs> God likes jewels. You know he's into jewelry in a big time. Just doesn't. Just doesn't like you to wear them, huh? <laughs> the transparency. Well, that is a very striking feature, actually, in chapter 21, because you will see several images that are images of, in some ways, jewels, but they are transparent. There is a, <coughs> the, 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 the emphasis on transparency is, is very striking. Any thoughts on the notion of the glory of God? It has the glory of God. So God's presence, yes. God's character, okay. Okay. So you could you could sort you could do a, a quite an uh, extensive thesis on on the meaning of the glory of God there, yes. A glory that could that that is not good for the wicked. It it is it is light to the righteous. There is a sort of ambivalence to the glory of God. Yes. Okay. That. So that would be in more sort of li- in a literal sense too, then that there is, there is glory in a, in a sense of splendor too. Uh, so we could go in in many directions here. Well, let's let's read on. Let's do the gates, uh, verses twelve and thirteen. If someone else would read that, it has a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has twelve foundations, and on them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Yeah, the description of the gates, three here, three there, three there, I think those are Ezekiel. That's quite quite similar to Ezekiel. So, But we're getting a sort of anchoring of this of these gates. On the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. So how does that, what does that do for us? Yes. The image, yeah, what's the necessity of high walls? <coughs> we, any, any thoughts yourself? <laughs> You'd rather not have the walls? Uh, see, see, this is a risky book to read because so many things are not the way they seemed at for, on first sight. You know, we have we've had to to backtrack a number of times where the image seems to suggest something, and we have had to we have taken a, a, the liberty to say, well, it didn't really mean that. It is symbolic of a of a reality, and maybe the walls are 
you know, could, you know, what, let's just not jump to conclusions. Maybe there is some, some, some uh, subtle meanings here. Yes? So there could be, the, the, the image of walls should not then, I mean, that's a first step then to say the image of walls is not an image to say exclusion, inclusion, that there is a dividing of who is inside, who is outside, that, you know, that if whatever meaning it has, it wouldn't be that. Okay, let's try some more. Surely these, the, 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 uh, this image here in these two verses, they has deep roots in the Old Testament. So there is, there is an appropriation of the story of the Old Testament here, isn't there? The, pa- the story of the patriarchs, the story of, of Israel, as it were. All right, so now we are doing the foundations. And, and what's that? What is he doing for us here? The sort of symbolism, the gates, patriarchs, Israel, the foundations. Now, the twelve apostles of the Lamb, what's that? So it it fits that image that the city is not, or the salvation, or the future world is not just salvation of uh, what Shaki Lul says. There is that that human beings are saved with their works in a sense that that it's not like all of history is is sort of abandoned or or cancelled or 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 nullified. Here, of course, what is the history here? It's the New Testament, isn't it? It is the story of the church. So it's the story. In the previous two verses, it's the people of God in the Old Testament. And here it is the people of God in the New Testament. In the New Testament onward, it is the, the whole story of the people of God, exemplified or symbolized or sort of embedded in the, in the, in the hardware of the, of the city, isn't it? See, the, so I think you could, you, we could, we're, we have not over-interpreted the symbols at all if we, if we claim that much. Who is commemorated in a city? You know, who, who are the victors? Who are the people whose, who, whose names are worthy of remembrance? Yes, who do you see in these cities? In, in, in the British Museum, you see the Assyrian kings, you know, really, really bad, bad people, you know, Sargon and Sennacherib and all those, those guys. But here you see these, these, uh, and certainly in the New Testament terms, you would see these nobodies, these people who seem to be on the losing side of the world plot. And here they are on the winning side. They are the ones, you know, who, who, who have, who have prevailed. And they are also not figures of power. They are, they are figures of, 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 of another type of story, as it were. Okay, I, I think we see the picture here, what something is being portrayed here that, that has to do with the story of the people of God. Well, you want to do the details here. <coughs> Who is the twelfth apostle? It'll be interesting to find out. We will, we will find out. <laughs> Paul is a strong candidate, isn't he? <coughs> okay, 21, 15, and 16. Who reads that? So it is, you know, this is quite, <laughs> quite, you know, this is a strange, strange city, isn't it? Um, I mean, most cities, there are, there are, in the ancient world has a lot of cities that are square, square cities, that in, in two dimensions, but we do not have cubic cities. That, so this city is, is defying our, our, our convention in a bad way here with the cubic shape to it. And is it big? 1500 miles. Traveling from here, 1,500 miles, where are we then? Okay, that's what Brent was doing last time when he did it here on the board. He, made, he said it isn't really cubic but, because it is shaped. Uh, but I will say it is probably cubic 
because there is a, the, the Old Testament antecedents here. If you do Old Testament antecedents, if you do not, you could certainly imagine, imagine it that way. But if you do with Old Testament in imagery, it seems that the text is really wanting us to, to see a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, background reality. Uh, and what would that background reality be? Most scholars, uh, uh, Matthew, this uh, this person who has written a monograph on on the two last chapters in Revelation, says that most scholars therefore have appropriately concluded that John is following the similar description of the holy of holies found in First uh, Kings six twenty for this geometrical figure. That what he wishes is to describe to us a big space that is similar to the holy of holies. And let's just hold our breath a little for that one, because that is an amazing idea. Uh, uh, I want to delay delay the meaning of it a little and put it into our summary today. But but uh, the text there, First Kings six twenty. Maybe one of you will look it up and read it, uh, just to get the flavor of it. Uh, it's not that it is the same size. It is the because the holy of holies was not that big. It is that it is. It is, uh, you know, it is that kind of space that he wash, wishes to portray to us. It's not the shape so much as it is holy space. And to describe holy space, he goes to the holiest space in Osob, which is the holy of holies. So who reads, who will read six, uh, First Kings 6.20? This inner sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with solid gold. He also overlaid the altar made of cedar. So our, our, our space here, our sacred space here, or our space here, because it's not... Now, the, the holy city, it is called the holy city in the uh, book of Revelation. But this holy of holies in the Old Testament is only 20, what was it, 20 cubits? Yeah, so that's not very big. But uh, 1,500 miles is big. You know, so uh, what is he trying to tell us here? He's really trying to tell us something quite amazing. And let's just hold it a little and do a, a, a bit more anatomy here before we try to, to do the meaning. Now, now, is it big, the city? Is it big? 1500 is, is he trying to say, is he saying 1500 miles? That's it. Or is he saying 1,500 miles to tell you it is so big that he is really wanting to say it is big, it is beyond measure? Would you say it is measure or beyond measure? That he is, you know, does you want to, when, you know, you could say that it could be an analogy to, to Jesus when, when Peter asked him, how often should I forgive? And then seven times, is that, you know, is that good? And then Jesus says, 70 times 7, and he meant 490, right? So, you know, he meant 490, and now it's all, you know, you've run out. So, he meant, did he, did he mean, did he mean forgiveness with a limit, or did he mean forgiveness to which there is no measure? So, 1500 miles, is 1500 miles me- measurable space, or is it space beyond measure? Just, he just, takes a very big number to put it, you know, to get you started, as it were. But he meant to tell you that it is an immeasurable space. That would be my my hunch. And there is another background text in the Old Testament that we have visited before when we did Revelation 11. 
And <clears throat> many scholars think that this text needs to be factored into the notion of the city in the in the uh, in Revelation 21. So let's read Zechariah 2 verses 1 through 5 again. We've read it before. Here also somebody is measuring the city, and there is again an eschatological texture to Zechariah's uh, vision here. He is also in a sort of apocalyptic frame frame of mind. I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what it is, to see what is its width and what is its length. Then the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, I love, I love these angels. There's lots of angels in the Bible. <coughs> They are all over the place. <clears throat> they are a neglected category of being. When I do uh, God and human suffering, I, I strive to, to persuade everybody to embrace the notion that there is a triangular shape to human reality. There is a triangular shape to reality. There is God, there are humans, and there are non-human beings. And you don't have to read very far in the Bible to, to think that the Bible thinks in those terms, that there are non-human beings, there are angels. So here they are. Then the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. Multitude of people and animals. For I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. So here we are reconfiguring a city without walls. So the walls were not, well, there are walls, but here the walls is, you know, what is the wall? Well, you can't really say what it is because it isn't the usual kind of wall. You know, there is, I will be a wall of fire all around it and I will be a glory within it. And what is the size, of what is meant by the measure? It's a measurable space, isn't it? You go to measure it, but, but there is a sort of counter, counter order, sort of uh, uh, a, a, a way of thinking here that the measure was really meant to tell you that there was no measure to it. It was immeasurable space. Yes. And, and back to the question of whether the walls denote, you know, inside and outside, that there is some space outside of which God is not present in the new world. See, that seems to now have been deconstructed, that possibility. There is no place outside of which God is not present now. God is everywhere present, you know, if we, so that we need to, to, to sort of do the, the wall, uh, what is it, the geometry here in a way that doesn't destroy our theology, because the theological, uh, theological uh, uh, point here seems to be to take us to a, a different sort of measure completely. <coughs> here is a comment from a, a commentary on Zechariah. Verses 4 and 5 that we just read present one of the most amazing texts in the Old Testament. Zechariah sees a vision of the future Jerusalem as a broad, spreading metropolis with the wall of God's presence around her 
and the glory of his presence within her. The church's greatest defense is still God's presence around her and his glory within her. You know, so there is a spiritual image, a sort of a way to appropriate this type of, of language even to our present reality and not just to our, to the future reality. See, so now <coughs> what happened to the wall? What happened to the shape of this thing? Well, we'll try to add it up in the end. Let's read uh, 21.16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 1,500 miles. I'd like to put, just to put another thought in there on the, on the 1,500 miles. Because uh, I think all the things we've said already are valid. But there is a sort of cosmic conflict perspective here that I would that that occurred to me when I was doing this yesterday and thinking about it it just struck me that one of these strange texts that we did earlier could could lines up here uh, uh, in, in a way that could be meaningful in revelation 14:20 where there is the harvest imagery the harvest of grapes and the harvest of wheat and then uh, the last verse in that passage, the last verse in Revelation 14, says that the winepress was trodden outside the city. And we have argued here earlier that that city is the New Jerusalem. It is the city about which we are reading in Revelation 21, that the winepress is trodden outside of that city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, or as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of about 200 miles. And this is, a str it's again, you know, distance. So you have the size of the city now. What was it? I mean, these, these uh, measurements are just very strange. The size of the city was 1,500 miles. I, I mean, they're, they're just so awkward. These, odd, these numbers are so awkward. And the blood flowed outside the city. How far? 200 miles. So, uh, it's just that, that in Revelation, you have only two places where you have this kind of measurements of distance. Epi, stadion, dodeca, chiliadon. That's the 1,500 miles. And then, apo, stadion, stadia is the, is the Greek term, chilion, hexacusion, 1,600 stadia you know, in the, in the last text. It just seems to me that, one, that this very odd piece of information in Revelation 14, where the blood flowed from the, you know, as high as the bridles of the horses for that kind of distance, really, it's just, it's, a, it's an odd number, and it is not meant to be taken literally, but it offers you perspective. You know, it assumes that you and I have have a sort of sense of the city here. That number needs to be seen in perspectives to that number. Do you do you get what I'm trying to to get at here? This this kind of this piece of information is odd. It's one of the oddest uh, oddest verses in all of Revelation. But it seems to me that it. I mean, you, we could we could postulate at least that it it the right thing to do to relate it to the description of the city and the measurement of the city and it is cosmic conflict imagery it gives you a sort of it puts that the ending of the cosmic conflict then into perspective in a way 
maybe you have to think about it. It just struck me that 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 would be that those two designations of distance here really really uh, are related to each other and and should not be be separated from each other. Yes. Yeah, that's that's. I I think the translation here is actually uh, depriving us of something because the twelve thousand has a symbolism. The number twelve is a number in the in the realm of the sacred, and the number sixteen hundred is a multiple of four, which is a, not a number of the sacred. You see, so there is a there is the way to translate it. They should not have taken away from us the sixteen hundred and the and the twelve thousand. You know, in this translation. But so let's see. Uh, who was next? Well, the the literal translation is twelve thousand stadia, and then sixteen hundred stadia. Yeah, but stadia. So they thought, well, we can't say stadia. Nobody knows what that is, so they give it to us in miles. But we lose something of the biblical type of you know, the biblical numerology, as it is called. Yeah. Well, there is a theological point to this too. So we'll see what we get to. Anyway, somebody has actually actually supported that notion of a sort of cosmic conflict uh, paradigm here for the the text in uh, in uh, the size of the city and and uh, that connection. Uh, let's read uh, now. Moving on to seventeen and eighteen verses. Who will read that? He also measured its wall, one hundred forty-four cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. Which is human. The angel is using the same measurement as human measurements. You know, can heaven communicate with earth? You know, is there is there language? Is there are we are is there are you know are there conceptual? Uh, you know, oh, is there conceptual overlap between the divine reality, the angelic reality, and human reality? You know, can we can we talk to each other meaningfully? And surely, the Bible seems to end on a note that it has struck from the beginning. This is how I read Genesis, where where uh, uh, human beings are given the task of naming animals, aren't they? That that their animals parade in front of human beings, and whatever name human beings gave to the animal, that was its name. You know what? What do you hear there? What I hear is the ability of human beings to describe reality. That human beings are equipped to understand reality. There is an empowerment of of human beings in the created order. Within, it's not just that whatever name. Well, I think did we play that song, John uh, Bob Dylan's song here? Man gave names to all the animals. We did that in one of our uh, lighter moments here. Uh, and and this is you know it, as though these are just arbitrary labels. I don't think they are arbitrary labels. Giving name to something in the Bible means to give an adequate description of it, to characterize it in a meaningful way. So there is in the beginning of the Bible the notion, this is what philosophers call epistemology, the ability to know something and to really know it. And that Plato said you can't do. And Kant, Immanuel Kant said you can't do it. But the Bible said that you could do it because... Human beings in the beginning actually had 
the ability was were given the ability to to describe reality and here in the end in what may or may not be related i i will not you know put too much money on this one but but in the end of the bible there seems to be something about transcendent reality touching base with immanent reality heavenly reality touching you earthly reality in a way that makes communication possible and meaningful you see what i'm trying to say this is a huge issue in 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 philosophy but it seems the bible has a quite a simple simple view of this that this is real knowing something really knowing it is quite possible now we are back to john's point here about transparency again here is another image of transparency while the city is pure gold clear as glass i want to push on here Let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's do uh, verses tw- uh, 19 and 20. The foundations of the wall of the city are ordained with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Well, the take-home message here is that maybe you and I should be a little more interested in jewelry. <laughs> and the biblical background texts here are Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen, which is the setting of the cosmic conflict. You walked back and forth among the precious stones. And the stones that are enumerated in Ezekiel 28 are very similar to the stones in the New Jerusalem. Also, Exodus 28, 17 and 21, the stones that are enumerated there are the stones where? The stones on the breastplate of the high priest. So there is a notion of place and priesthood here that certainly I would love someone to write an article about it. It has never been done. But there is, you know, con- connotation there of place and priesthood both. But we're not going to pursue that in, in detail either. We'll move on. Uh, twenty-one, twenty-one. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl. And the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. Again, we have the notion of transparency. It's very, very pervasive here. So I'm, uh, I just put as headline here, wholeness and transparency as, as again, something that one would be, you know, if we taught a course on Revelation, this would be a term paper for somebody. Okay. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city for its temple in the, is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And this is a pertinent negative in the, in the description of Revelation. I saw, I saw, I saw, I heard, I heard. You know, that is the, is the way the Revelation tells its story. And here is something I did not see. Is that a pertinent negative in medicine? Would that have been a pertinent negative? You know, you do physical findings, you find pertinent <coughs> negatives. Surely you do here. I saw no temple. It is contrary to expectation in a big way. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need. God has sunned. I, I wrote first here, S-O-N, S-S-U-N. But then I thought, well, that's a little too tacky, so I wasn't doing that. <laughs> so I changed it to God as sun. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord is its light, and the lamp, lamp and its lamp is the lamb. And uh, again, there is a, I say, a background there. And then there is a vision of inclusion. The nations will walk by its light, and uh, gates will never be shut, and so on. 
and then there is the criteria for inclusion, uh, 21, 27, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Getting to my summary here, and these are uh, sort of perspectives for further thought. So here is what I would like to, to uh, how I would like to summarize. The end of the human journey is the earth, not heaven. I attended a wonderful concert last uh, Sabbath, uh, Vespers, where people were singing hymns about heaven, and I love those hymns. But the end of the human journey is not heaven. The end of the human journey is earth, this earth. That's what we propose. And we're seeing that in this earth there are also many animals. It's the earth in a sort of recognizable way, a comprehensive redemption of all the created order. All that God has created is envisioned here. But the end of the journey is at the earth. I hope you do not disagree with that. There is still work to do on incorporating that in our thinking about the world to come or the life to come. The end of the human story will be even better than the beginning. It was very good at the beginning. It became very terrible. But it's the terrible aspects, the sort of defeats, the thwarting of God's purpose was, you know, it ultimately led to something even better than what God had done at the beginning. That is taught in the Bible. I think you can see it. Behold, the dwelling of God, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he shall dwell with them. That is the, the point then, uh, 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 chief, uh, the, the point number three, just to drive that home. The chief attraction is the presence of God. And God in, a pre- in present with the human beings beyond in ways that exceed the way God was present initially. And you and I can specify that in some ways, can't we? What is the exceeding part of it? That God has become not only someone who dwells among man, dwells among human beings, but God has in fact taken upon himself humanity. God incarnate, God incarnate as a human being is now part of human reality. Jesus did not take upon himself human nature just sort of in a, in a sort of fleeting way. And, and put it down, you know, afterwards. He is forever a human being. The more than paradise regained, then is really that, isn't it? It is more than paradise regained in the sense that there is the presence of God, but God present among human beings as God and as a human being. Forever. This is permanent. It was an irreversible commitment to humanity when God became a human being in Jesus. God's presence is unmediated. How does the, how does Revelation tell that? I saw no temple in the city. The temple is a sense of mediated presence. This is unmediated presence. There is no temple in the city. There is nothing and no one between, as you might say here. In the life to come, the redeemed live in the most holy 24-7 and 365 days a year. You never live outside of sacred space in the world to come. I say that that we could infer that from the cubic shape, the sort of theological implications of the cubic shape. In this life, in Old Testament life, you go into the holy place, how often? Once a year. And who goes in there? 
the high priest, it is mediated presence, it's representative presence, you know, before God. But here everybody goes in and everybody goes in every day. You know, it is a big dif different thing. So it's, anyway, let's do the other th things too here. The New Jerusalem, its gates and foundations, it's proof of the continuity of the story of the people of God. The size of the New Jerusalem is proof of the triumph of the story of redemption. It is a very, very big city. It is not unsuccessful. What God has done to bring human beings back to himself has in some ways been crowned to success. You know, the size of the city, it's unmeasurable, immeasurable size. The New Jerusalem is fraught with the memory of the cosmic conflict. Try to make a case for that. Light, transparency, and trust will prevail. No night, no keys and no locked doors. And finally, we enter the city by choice and in some ways by selection because there is a, there is a sort of uh, doorkeeping here. You know, who, who will be part of creating that new and amazing, amazing reality?